Hello and welcome in for this Esports Life episode 21. Today our guest is the artist formerly known as Interobang, a Rainbow Six commentator, a rising streamer on Twitch, and our resident pierogi connoisseur. Intero, how are you? I'm well. I like the uh, the Prince throwback. I yeah. always think those are appropriate to make, so yeah. thank you. I'm nope. good. Uh, haven't eaten as many pierogies as I'd like, though, being over here in Poland, so I think you might have built me up a bit too much on that one. Okay. Okay. Well, mm -hmm. maybe if you switch to a real esport, you could afford to eat more pierogies. Got it. Thank day. you. That's huge compliment. Yep. How many uh, how many tier one events have you worked last year? Wow, this is not a pissing contest. Okay, We're just, this is not a measuring. <laughs> we don't need to. I don't have anything to prove. All right, I don't know where this animosity came from. All right. Uh, okay. Okay. All right. So, uh, and for for the people who may be new to the podcast, this is the first ever live episode. And the goal of the podcast is to kind of create an archive of backstories for your favorite esports personalities, uh, for the fans or just maybe people who have aspirations of working in esports. I'm sure you've uh, I'm sure you've talked to many people who have asked you about adv about advice for getting into the scene or what it's like being in the scene. Um, and so we'll talk about some of that. Yeah, it's it's really weird when people ask me about it when it's like I've been involved in a a year and a half and I kind of just landed in here because of bizarre happenstance. It wasn't mm -hmm. like it was a, a planned thing unlike a lot of other people. So could that have gone wrong? Like you just got thrown into it. If you didn't kind of take the opportunity by the horns a year and a half ago, could you have messed it up? Could you got pushed out? I mean, I suppose so. Like it was, it was a really interesting period and I, I'm happy to, cause I know you're still in the middle of the intro. I'm happy to revisit this, but it was a, a series of really strange events that landed me here. It was all extraordinarily good timing. It's like the planets aligned. So, you know, it was, there was a shortage on talent. There was really very little amateur talent that was up and coming. The pro league broadcast was being uh, condensed to try to meet deadlines. So they needed additional people to come out. I was in a position where I'd actually just, or was in the process of just leaving a job. I was just about to start, you know, a program at university and I had all this ability to just cut all my ties. It was, it was very interesting. So, um, I took it seriously because I realized like when everything lines up like that, you got to at least give it a, give it a shot. And I liked it. How did you know you were, um, going to be a good caster? How did, did you have the gift of gab? Did someone tell you, uh. did someone in esports? <laughs> So you've got the golden voice. You need to start casting this game. Um, I was I was playing on a Call of Duty team, and we were doing this uh, this tourney event. And there was, well, back on old Ventrilo back in 2010, um, I was in a meeting, and some guy just says, "You have I'll, I'll never forget it." He just kind of stops the meeting. He's like, "You have a very clean voice, very clean. clean. He's like a very clean voice, like very neutral." Um, and he's just like, have you ever considered casting? And I never really had, but I mean, like, I feel like every kid grows up and pretends to be a commentator when they're playing like sports outdoors. Mm -hmm. So every kid has that, like that ability of whether they can do it or not. I don't know. And then just one day I, I figured, you know what? Oh, let's come back to it. Okay. So I did let's, it for fun. Let's, let's pull that apart a bit. So if we roll, okay. go back in time, uh, all the way to baby and tarot, um, what, what, what were the first games that you played? What were your favorite games? Um, parents bought me a Super Nintendo after I tried it at a family friend's house uh, when I was younger. And I grew up on like 
Mario and Zelda and Donkey Kong and all that jazz. And then from a Super Nintendo to a, a Nintendo 64. My my mother very strangely bought a computer with MS-DOS on it back in like the early 90s when I was just a young kid. We're both the same age. We are both born in 1990s. So, I mean, I think we've had a pretty... Uh, we've pl- been able to play like most of the systems since they came out because we came around at the right time. I was I was naturally like drawn to first person shooters like, you know, Wolfenstein, Doom, Catacombs, Abyss, all that jazz. And it was it was fun. And then on the N64, like Goldeneye and Perfect Dark, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, Mario Party, Super Smash Brothers. Then a lot of platformers. You, I really loved I main? really loved platformers. So who'd you main in Super Smash Bros? Uh, Fox. I've always been a Fox guy. Okay. Even and then and then in melee, I I mained Fox as well, and then melee started to get real sweaty, and Fox was like the meta. Yeah, people so. are tearing their cartilage apart trying to keep up with uh, Fox tech these days. Um, yeah, yeah, but I I remember the first two uh, most difficult decisions that I've ever had to make, and it's all relative to how old you are. You know, when you get old, it's picking an apartment from another apartment, picking a girlfriend from another girlfriend. But when you're younger, it's Pokemon Red and Blue, it's, it's N64 <laughs> and uh, PlayStation. Uh, yeah. those are, those are the hard decisions back then. I went the Nintendo route as well. Um, maybe it's a 1990s thing. Maybe it was in our Zodiac. I'm not sure. You're the horse. Uh, <laughs> so I, so, okay. So we go from there. You go, you, you started with just all of these, just a variety of, of, um, games and consoles, the standard start to, uh, uh, to most of our childhoods, I think for a lot of us in esports now, how does, how does that turn into competitive multiplayer games? Um, I, it was my transition to computer. I would say, you know, sometime around, uh, I don't know. My family got the internet in like 1999, 2000, 2001. I don't remember when somewhere in that window. And I was introduced to, uh, Starcraft, um, and then Diablo shortly thereafter. A lot of my friends growing up were big into CS, uh, one point, I guess it would have been just 1.5 at the time, 1.6. Um, they were really into counter-strike and, I, my mother was always uh, not necessarily the biggest fan of realistic violent games at the time. I mean, if you're playing Doom, that's one thing and you're playing Wolfenstein, like that's one thing. But, you know, then you're getting like 3D graphics and you're watching Counter-Strike and you're like, oh, my God, you're killing real people. You know, it looks so realistic. And um, I don't know. I just I kind of stayed with like Starcraft and Diablo, too. And I've, I've always been a, a fairly competitive person just in my makeup in, in the sense that it's like when I do things, I strive to be better and continuously improve. And I think that kind of puts you down a path of, of real competition. Um, I know I used to, I used to like be on dueling teams with Diablo two and all that jazz. And then eventually I, uh, I got a laptop. I got call of duty back in 2009. And I guess that was my real foray into it. I started playing with a bunch of friends just casually. And then next thing you know, I was pretty good. So I started playing on teams and the teams I played on were pretty good. So it, it kind of just grew from there. Did you have aspirations to become a pro player then? I didn't know this. Um, well, I played on what was for a while one of the top ranked teams on the Team Warfare League, uh, MW2T uh, leaderboards that we used to use all the way back and on PC Call of Duty. Um, I captained one of the teams and this was back before esports was like a real thing. Like in 2009, like Call of Duty, I feel like was just starting to take off on consoles, but on PC, it was completely dead. Um you know, the only orgs in the scene at the time were like Area 51 at a team, 
Blight Gaming had a team and like UNR had a team. And I think they were the only ones with salaries. And even then it was, it was pitiful. Um, and the grand prize for like the one MW2T tourney was like everybody got like a computer from like Cooler Master and Corsair or something like that. I can't remember. It was so small. Um, the team Ozone was pretty good. Did I aspire to be a pro player? Not really. I also just kind of stumbled into that too. But at the time I was good and I found a game that I excelled at. I played with people who were really talented and, you know, it was fun. You'd, you'd come home from school or you'd come home from work. At the time it was my first year of university, which was terrible timing because it absolutely impacted my grades. Um, you'd come home from, from class and you'd dry run or you'd do VOD review or you'd scrim. And it was, it was exciting. It was something fun to do, but I think I just came in at the wrong time. You know, like esports didn't really take off until I was probably in my mid twenties and at that point, I'm I'm an old man, you know, which is why I think I decided to go the casting route. But what's what's old man? What defines old man for you? You start growing ear hair. I don't hair? know. I just yeah. I mean, I don't have ear hair. I don't have any. I found a I found a gray hair in my beard this morning. But okay. I just Does that freak you out a bit. Not really. Okay. Not really. I think it's I think it's you know, what would be the, what would be the word that I'm looking for here? It's. I feel like I'm starting to like mature. It's becoming. You know, it's very becoming of me. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I feel like I, I kind of stopped gaming as well after like 2000, after Call of Duty fell off, I stopped, I was playing TF2 casually and like that was it. I didn't have like a real computer for like three years and then I built one and I got into the swing of things and I came back, I was playing like Rocket League and Overwatch and I started playing Rainbow Six and things just kind of clicked. I really liked the game. So I stuck with it. Okay. So universe, so right before university is when you started playing somewhat competitive Call of Duty on top ranked teams. Is that, so it's just around... In the high school days, right before university, so you're university. Just, like I yeah. started playing it like two months into university. Yeah. Okay, so we're talking it like came out. It came out in November two thousand nine. Nine, two thousand nine. And then when you got into university, grades you had to you had that struggle between balancing your <laughs> love for games and uh, yeah. your love for grades. For the first year, definitely. Um, it was also a difference of, you know, it was it was a big jump up from high school. I felt like I don't necessarily think that high school either. I didn't prepare myself the best or high school didn't prepare myself the best, but I think that's really kind of a, a user thing. Like your own mileage may vary. Um, but the way that I saw it was, it's just like, you know, Oh my God, you don't have to go to class if you don't want to. Oh my God. Like you don't have to listen in lecture if you don't want to, like nobody cares. Like you're in a lecture hall with 200 people. Everybody's got their laptops out. You could be doing whatever you want. You know, and I think it was, I think there was definitely a lack of discipline there on, on my part for that first year. I righted the ship afterwards, but I mean, the first year was a struggle because it was me trying to figure out how far I could push, you know, without it directly impacting me. So this is where the, the, the storyline diverges a bit because you go from having a foray with esports to some degree, but esports doesn't blow up in 2009. People are still working for free. Pro players are not making enough to have like a, to be able to make a livable wage. And so most people who are going to be responsible are actually going to, you know, go off and do something else. What were you in school for? And, um, yeah, tell us a bit about your degree and then where that led you after. Uh, I enrolled at a university in Toronto to do, um, it was a, it was a double major honors program originally in political sciences and economics. And I dropped out of economics, uh, and changed it to international development after the first year. Um, I also made the mistake of picking a lot of morning classes in that first year and that was hell. Um, so I changed after that to more afternoon based classes. Um, 
I don't know. I, 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 I was always really interested in politics and I've been involved in politics since high school. Um, I did a lot of volunteer work. There wasn't a lot of money in that either. Um, if any, and yeah, esports just wasn't really a thing. Like I feel like in high school, MLG's biggest focus was on like Halo and, and the Call of Duty tournaments and stuff like that. And I think Gears start was starting to take off around that time, but it's just that it, it wasn't where it is now. You know, these global productions with tens of thousands, 20,000 people, like it was for Starcraft, especially in Korea. But I feel like in North America, it was, it was in its infancy. So I didn't want to, you know, be a pro because being a pro at the time literally meant nothing. Like I still keep in touch with a couple of the guys that I used to play Call of Duty with on other teams, including teams where they made salaries and none of them game anymore. <laughs> like it didn't go anywhere for any of them. Mm -hmm. So I, in, in that sense, I guess I'm kind of an anomaly because it's like I made it out of that and I'm still employed and still in this industry. Yeah. So then you went into, you did work in, in politics for a bit. Yeah. So I, while I was in university, I worked for both my student union as well as during two summers. I worked as an intern doing internship stuff down at Queens Park uh, for the provincial legislature, um, doing just like basic like light policy stuff, basic intern stuff. And it was it was definitely an eye opener. But I think what it really did was it cemented my dislike of the politics side of things, not necessarily the policy side of things. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty and that's pretty true to myself, like the only reason why I was interested in politics to begin with was the ideas aspect of it. I thought that the whole idea between, you know, horse racing or horse trading and like politicking and stuff like that was absolute shit. I think it's nonsense. Good ideas, in my opinion, like shouldn't need people to have to bargain and, and exchange favors, but that's just a part of the system. And I got frustrated with it. I found it really cliquey. So I, I kind of just one day I literally dropped out of school. I tore up all my memberships. I quit all my jobs and I moved 3,000 kilometers to the Rocky Mountains, and I lived there for two years. Bad breakup? No, it was just I wanted to change. I felt really restless, and I don't I don't fault them for it. I wanted to drop out a year earlier from university, but my parents were like, just give it one more go. And I tried, um, but after I got about halfway through that year, and I was like, why did I do this? Like, mm -hmm. I, I should have stuck to my guns. And, you know, I realized at that point that I have the freedom to do this. I went out West. I paid off all my debt. I paid off all my student loans. I had a great time. Got to travel a lot. It was my first time being on a plane, which freaks a lot of people out. The first time flying was when I was 24. Um, I don't regret it at all. Wow. Um, that's actually interesting. Let's let's get a little divisive here now to, to delve okay. more into that. Um, mm -hmm. you, you left politics because you didn't like the politics side of things. Yeah. Wouldn't you... Wouldn't you agree that you, in in, in uh, even in our profession, you don't necessarily escape the politics side of things? Um, it might not be quite as bad, but uh, it's not something that you necessarily. It's, it's something you've actually got to be able to understand how to use. Um, have you run into negatives and positives with the politics? Do you feel like there's less of it in esports than there is in actual politics? Do you like it? Do you hate it? What are your, what are your thoughts on politics and esports? I mean, politics is going to be everywhere, right? Politics is life. There are people with differing opinions and people with power. As long as there are people who have, you know, strong personalities with any form of leverage or, you know, control over other people, there will be political decisions that will be made. It doesn't matter what industry it's in. You know, I, I worked in the service industry by and large uh, 
for at least every year from like when I was 18 until I was, you know, 27. And there's so much politics in that. It's, it's an incredibly emotional uh, industry and there's lots of politicking about things like shifts and, you know, wages and all that jazz. So you can't escape it, but I mean, imagine, imagine the politics that exist in esports. things like who's going to cast what event, you know, who's going to get what salary, who's going to cast the finals, who's going to, you know, get represented on this show. Who's going to go to that show instead, you know, all that jazz. But now imagine that you're politicking around politics. Not only are you dealing with people on the other side of the political spectrum who you have to try to meet with, but you also are politicking with stakeholders. That's corporations, unions, non-for-profits, et cetera. Then you're politicking with the bureaucracy because you have to try to make good on the, you know, the random rank and file who are just government employees who don't have a political ideology, but they're there to carry out what you want. And then you have to politic in your own office to make sure that things are being done. And then on top of that, you also have to ensure that the policies that are being made and presented by you in, in a certain ministry, et cetera, is also being accepted by the rest of the caucus too. There's like eight different layers of it and it's exceedingly tiring. And then on top of that, it's just, it's, it's shit pay you know, for an immense amount of work. Everybody mm. there was salaried. And I had friends. I When I was serving, I was making more money as a bartender working five to six hour shifts from, you know, 7 p.m. until 1 a.m. or, you know, 8 p.m. until 2 a.m., et cetera. I was making more money after taxes than a lot of my friends were as entry-level staffers. And they were working like 12 to 14 hours and weekends. And they were always on call with their Blackberries. So it's just add all that together. And I just looked at it and I was like, man, I don't want this life. Mm -hmm. So you can't escape politics, but for you, it's not quite as bad. And, um, and that's okay. Is there, uh, if you were new to the industry, you're talking somebody who, to somebody who was coming in, but they were a bit concerned about their ability to maybe be able to deal with drama or, um, you know, they, they're, they're kind of a, they're a purist. They come in because they're good at something. They want to be good at it and they don't want to be bothered but they're worried that they're going to have to, you know, deal with people's problems and, and try to, I don't know. I, I don't want to make it sound insidious, but, um, they're, no, say they're it. going to have to play the make game. Make it sound insidious. They're going to have to yeah, play the game. Yeah. Everybody's got to play the game. Just shit. Yeah. What would you, what would you tell them if they were coming in? Um, would you, would you like be forewarned or would you be like, don't worry too much. You'll be able to figure it out as you go. Um, I mean, I've been, I've had pretty smooth sailing so far, but I also think that I approach it from a perspective where every single job I have, you know, kind of braced for impact regarding inter-business politics. Um, for people that might not have a lot of work experience or people who might not be as, you know, astute at observing this kind of stuff, they might be a little bit surprised at how cutthroat and how competitive this job is. Keep in mind that across the whole world, there's maybe what, 100 to 200 English language casters who can actually do this full time. It's a tiny, tiny number. And when you look at that, especially as esports grows, there's going to be budget constraints. There's going to be, you know, a general improvement in talent. There's going to be a desire for fresh blood and, and new faces. And there are just people who are not going to be good enough who are going to fall by the wayside. So, I mean, it, it's, it's twofold. Like you, you tell them that there's really just a ton of opportunity for them to come in and basically make a huge stamp because this is still the ground floor of esports. We're not even like a real decade in to the growth that this sport, like esports has seen. 
Um, so you basically want to, in my opinion, you want to tell them about all the opportunity and you want to instill a sense of pride in their accomplishments thus far, but a, uh, a hunger in them as well. Additionally, you want to also prepare them for the fact that sometimes the most talented people don't get the gigs that they deserve. And that's the political side of things. Sometimes mm -hmm. the people who kiss ass and play the game who are a seven out of 10 will get the job over you. Who's an eight out of 10 because of X amount of reasons. So yeah. as much as it might suck, you gotta, you gotta play or else you'll find yourself on the outside. And it only gets worse given the fact that, like I said, there's so many more people, even in rainbow six alone, the amount of amateur casters has like almost quadrupled in five months. And it's still showing a great, you know, no signs of slowing down. So these are people who want my job. These are people who want, you know, my coworker Kickstarter's job. And we have to, we have to be prepared to continuously improve and ensure that, you know, we deserve our spots there. Rainbow Six is a very, not, it's not a new esport, but it is, it is kind of newly popular. Um, mm -hmm. It's had a really big rise recently. Um, but just to get caught up between the gap of you working in politics and then you getting into Rainbow, uh, was there a was there a good story there about how you, you got you got called up to uh, called up to the plate to start casting Rainbow? Sort of, actually. Um, so I help I help run a community that I also co-founded. It's called Powerhouse, and it's basically just it, it was originally started because I've always been in like gaming teams, communities, clans, etc. You know, guilds, whatever you want to call them. Growing up, I think it's really cool, and I think it's a good bonding experience and. You know, I, there was a desire in me to kind of give back very similar to what you're doing with Boxer, I'd imagine, though I would guess that Boxer probably has a lot more funding behind it. Um, but basically the way that I saw it was, all right, like, let's get some amateur teams competing. Let's let's allow them to have an opportunity to to really, you know, play under a banner and, and get people to come together. And, you know, as I did when I was younger, get to meet people and have that ability to basically have a social network. Um and I came back and I was playing Overwatch a lot. One of our Overwatch teams was actually uh, looking to recruit and they wanted to do tryouts. And I can't remember who suggested it, but basically it organically came up that we should like, we should stream it. We should stream the tryouts. So we did. And I ended up like essentially commentating it and people liked it. The reception was good. Uh, we did a couple more for a couple other tryouts. And then one day we decided to do just like a fun rainbow six event because rainbow six was the game that I was playing the most actually at that time. And, uh, people liked it. And in fact, because the scene was so starved for any kind of amateur talent, um, there was somebody in there who was like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm affiliated with this thing called, you know, CCS. It's, you know, it's this up and coming rainbow six amateur league. It's played a couple of, a couple matches, you know, we're always looking for more talent, et cetera. You should apply. So I did. And then <clears throat> one day, one of our teams competed in this tiny, 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 tiny league that had like maybe five viewers called the Siege Contender Series. And the guy who usually casted it, his PSU blew up. So he couldn't cast one night. Well, I was off work. So I was like, hell yeah, I guess I'll do it. Why not? It's gonna be five people watching. Let's go for it. So I just, I casted it. The reception was really good and it just kept going from there. And next thing you know, I ended up meeting up with Kickstarter because I actually messaged him about something completely unrelated to Pro League. He responded. We started talking. He was at the point where he was basically done with his co-caster, didn't want to cast with him anymore, didn't want to work with him. And he said that he was looking for somebody new. 
And he was impressed. And he thought that I had a lot of talent and potential. And he took a huge chance on me, recommended me to the project manager of this entire production. They, they looked over it. They liked it. A couple pro players had heard me cast in other smaller leagues. They were very receptive of the idea. It, you know, they started shaking some trees at Ubisoft and at ESL. And next thing you know, at like 4.30 in the morning, my time, I get a message from the product or the project manager basically saying, hey, would you fly to Poland this weekend to help join our pro league broadcast? And that was it. So you don't eat that many pierogies anymore. How are you like in Poland? <laughs> it's not that I don't eat that many pierogies. I've actually been trying to eat really healthy uh, recently. Um, and pierogies are pretty starchy. Poland's nice. I like it. I had never been to Europe before. Um, I, like I said, I only got on a plane three years prior. Uh, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how many people would speak English. I realized that I didn't know anything about Poland or Polish culture. I didn't know anything about Katowice. I didn't know anything about Warsaw or Krakow. Like I, I just didn't. And I was ready to come over and basically just be a sponge and absorb everything I could. And it's been really interesting. I got to say, it's it's quite a different culture than Canada. So, uh, okay. So, is what's your what's your what are your next few years look like? Uh, not in um, not for what you think will happen. What's your ideal? Do you have like a five year plan, or do you try? How far in the future do you try to look in terms of um, your goals? I mean, a five year plan. I'd be thirty three years old. Mm -hmm. If you had asked me five years ago, I would have said that I'd have a university degree. I'd be settled down. I'd probably be in the process of starting a family because 33 was around the same age as when my parents started doing the same thing. And I'm like, seems like as good a time as any. Mm -hmm. um, but right now, no clue, no idea. I've kind of just taken the concept of having a plan or a path and just thrown it out the window. I have... Uh, I have a huge desire to keep casting. I don't dislike it by any stretch. I feel like I have so much room for improvement and it's a constant process of, of getting better, constant process of identifying weaknesses and, and working on them. And I'm, I'm somebody who is almost never satisfied with my own body of work, which drives me to want to continue that improvement. Mm -hmm. I think that I really enjoy streaming too. So, I mean, that's definitely something that's there as well. So I, I don't know. I, I have, I have opportunities I, I like to think, but I'm not really looking for a certain something at the moment. Do you think it's the, um, the competitive drive that has had you most, I guess that has influenced you most in sticking with casting and becoming kind of the best caster that you can be, or is it that you found out that you were good at casting and then you had a competitive drive to keep going. So now you're just in it 100% or is it a combination of those two things? I think it's a combination, but I'm also the kind of person who I've never really been inundated with compliments and things that boost my confidence prior. And it's kind of a new feeling. And I don't say that as a downer, but it's just that, you know, I've never really worked in an industry and I've never really been in a position where I have received this amount of praise and I don't, I don't really know if I necessarily deserve it. I, I think, like I said, I, I think I have so much more to improve upon and I'm very harsh uh, with my own abilities, but the feedback has definitely helped keep me in it. You know, if I, if I make my debut in September, 2017 and I botch it and I just completely bomb 
And after a month, the community doesn't like me and my skills don't really translate. I'm probably done. I probably go back to school as I had, as you know, as I was enrolled to, uh, and I finish up my program, you know, but I got to say the overwhelmingly supportive reception that I have received has astonished me. It's touched me and it's really motivated me. Is but there a dark side of that? Well, I mean, everybody's got that, right? Like the moment that the, the plaudits and the applause stop, I think that's a big issue for a lot of people. And I've actually heard that. I've heard from a number of people that it's like dealing with that is very difficult. You know, like when, like, let's say, you know, I continue to do this for two, three years time. Let's say just even say within the next year, some young hotshot caster comes up to Rainbow Six and, you know, completely eclipses me in every single way. I think dealing with that is very tough because not only do you have to reconcile your own inadequacies and the way that people treat you because of them, but you also have to do so in a public way, which I think is like the most difficult because you don't really have the privacy. This is a, this is an industry. This is a job and a career that demands you to be public and holds you accountable if you're not rightfully so, but trying to come to terms with somebody, you know, I guess beating you is very difficult alone, especially so when there's, you know, possibly tens of thousands of people watching. And I think that is really motivating. When I see people come into the scene and we have, like I said, a huge amount of interest, not just from amateur casters, but there are so many people from other games who want to come over and cast Rainbow Six. And these are people who are much better mechanically skilled casters than me. Their game knowledge and their understanding of Rainbow Six, the community, might suck in comparison, but these are people who've worked hard and established themselves at the top of other games. Am I threatened by that? Yeah, kind of. But more than anything, I'm motivated by it because I like the idea of a challenge. I don't like complacency. You know, comfort is comfort is the absolute killer when it comes to improvement. The moment you get comfortable, you start to fall into bad habits. I see all this new blood and this fresh blood, and I think to myself, how can I improve? Where are my weaknesses? Because now there's even greater threats looming in the background of people who might come in and, and take this job or people who might come in and, you know, force me out, et cetera. And I just want, to, I'm motivated by that. It's that competitiveness, like you said. So I think it's, I think it's twofold. Have you ever asked yourself why, um, why you, and this is something that Hiko said in a, uh, Valve documentary we used to do player profiles at majors. And um, mm. Val that, or Hiko asked a really good question, a former Team Liquid player. And he said, mm. um, you've, everyone has to ask themselves, why is it me and not somebody else? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why me and not somebody else? Uh, I think that uh, the right man at the wrong time can make all the difference. If I can borrow that quote um, in keeping with the whole Valve theme there. Um, <laughs> I hope I got the quote right. I hope it's not the wrong man at the right time. I think it's the right man at the wrong time can make all the difference, if I recall. I don't know. Chat will correct me on this, I'm sure. I think both work, um, to be honest. Um, I mean, they, they both do in this in this circumstance. I came at a really good time. Like I said, the amount of English-speaking amateur casters who were even casting low-level games, not even, and I don't say this to be rude, but we're not even talking like skilled, just period. The amount of English-speaking amateur casters at that time could probably be counted on one hand across Europe, across APAC and Australia, across North America. 
So if you were good, even if you weren't great, but you were just kind of okay, you'd set yourself apart because there was, there really wasn't that much competition. And I, I mean, for me, I like to think that almost everything I've done has kind of built towards being able to speak on my feet and speak well. You know, I, I worked as a server. I worked as a bartender. Conversation is the cornerstone of that job, along with your choice of words, your efficiency with those words, knowing that you have to meet deadlines and be able to get stuff done within a time frame. All things that apply to casting around. You know, when I was in politics, I was extraordinarily outspoken. I participated in a number of like model United Nations stuff and mock parliaments when I was growing up. So I'm very accustomed to being able to speak on my feet strongly with an audience. I've never really been frightened of public speaking either. I don't really care if there's 10 people or 10,000 people watching me. So I think all of those things have probably helped prepare me for this industry mm -hmm. as much as there's a lot of stuff that I just don't think can prepare you. I think coming into esports, especially commentating, there's just a lot of stuff that you can't be ready for and you just have to learn it as you go. So, so you think it's like your, your confidence and your speaking ability that, um, that separate you from other people. What are some things that hold you back? You, you know, you wake up some days you have a, some days you have a proverbial bad hair day and there's not much you can do about it. You do everything else, right? Get exercise and um, do your vocal warm ups and eat the mm -hmm. eat the right food and then you go cast and <clears throat> the right words don't come out. You don't you're, you're not able to unlock your vocabulary. What is the key to consistency and how do you deal with bad days? Uh, it's tough. There are some days where I definitely wake up and it feels like my brain has just not come out of its cage for the day. Mm -hmm. And there's it's very difficult to get it out. Um, there are casts where I'm definitely sitting in the studio and I'm thinking to myself, like, I want to be better and I can't quite vocalize what I want to say today. And it's maddening because it just feels like it's slightly out of reach. Um, I don't know. I don't know the way around it, to be completely honest with you. Um, I haven't been able to find a way. Thank God it hasn't happened to me at any LAN event. And I think a lot of that is that LAN kind of imbues you with this adrenaline mm -hmm. that nothing else comes close to. And people don't really understand what it's like to cast at a LAN event until they actually do it. And it's it's a really big wake-up call for a lot of talent, myself included. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that you learn about yourself, about your enthusiasm levels, about your abilities when you're stress testing it in front of thousands of people in a live audience. Um, but yeah, that's that's a good question. I don't really have a lot of advice for that. There are just some days where it's some days you just have to make sure that the ship sinks slower than it is, I think. Mm -hmm. And you can lean on your co-caster. Um, one thing that I really try to do before each broadcast, if I feel like I'm waking up and I'm, I'm foggy or, you know, words are slipping away, I try to talk as much as possible just so if I need to, you know, if I, if there's words that I need and things like that, by being conversational in between breaks, you know, in the run up to the show during rehearsals, et cetera, I'm hoping that at some point I'm able to, you know, kickstart my brain and really be able to get it going mm -hmm. in hopes that at some point during the broadcast, you know, it'll find that, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth gear, et cetera. Yeah, I do the exact same thing. Um, that it's also an interesting point about LAN, and I don't know what it feels like for other people, but uh, for myself, it, it's it's kind of a drug on almost casting in front of a live audience and being able to hear them through your direct monitoring and yeah. being surrounded by the people and just feeling all of the energy when they talk, you know, that 
a cliche quote about how these, you know, the, cl- the crowd is electric, you know, actually feeling the energy of everybody. It's just this, this, this feeling that you can't get when you go back to um, casting from your room or casting from a studio, but you've still got to cast those games like they're the most important games going on. Is there, um, does that ever affect you having to go or like you're going to go cast the Invitational and then you're going to come back and, and cast the next season of Pro League or do studio stuff after that? Do you ever lose motivation coming back to the studio stuff or are you still at a point where there's not there's not so many rainbow games in general that um, you feel like the Pro League games aren't so important? Because that's kind of the problem we had in CS a little bit. It's CS is interesting because from conversations that we've had, from conversations that I've had with other CS talent, it, it's funny because CS Pro League is not really seen and heralded as like the top, right? You have so many LAN events, you have so many majors, you have so many live events as well that it's just Pro League is kind of the redheaded stepchild that exists because it needs to, but in all reality, it's it's kind of inconsequential to most people and. You know, I, I'll be honest, I don't think the move to Facebook really helped it in terms of viewership either. And because viewership gets lowered, I think also to a certain extent, expectations do as well. Whereas for us, Pro League is the tippity top, right? Like it, if you suck at Pro League and you flame out, then you're basically irrelevant. There are not enough events for you to be able to make money, to get sponsors, to get visibility, et cetera, um, the same way. So that's definitely something mm. that I find very interesting. Um Whereas when if you we, win, you're like finish, a world champion. Right. So you, you know, stop. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the only world championship is when you win the invitation. But no, yeah. I find... Yeah, also, I find also, that, also, also, also. The, uh, it wasn't always like that for CS. In the beginning, Pro League on Twitch used to get 100k viewers for every Oh, match. no, 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 no. Yeah, I think yeah. I think you're at that point now. I And that's what I said. I, I, don't, I think as it's kind of gone on and more events have happened, then it's very different. But, you know, for us for us, the way I see it is that when I come back from a live event, I'm actually energized and it's kind of a high that carries through for a couple weeks um, because it's so fresh in your mind. And you're thinking to yourself, like, I can't wait for the next event. This is awesome. I'm just so overjoyed to be able to cast this. I don't come into a studio and think to myself, oh, this is shit. Where are the people? These matches aren't important. I think that's a, I think that's a really poor attitude. Um, so the way, the way that I see it is it's like when an event ends, usually we have like a week or two afterwards where we can kind of decompress, we can relax, all that jazz, and, you know, go on like a mini vacation if we want to. But you definitely ride that high. And for me personally, I ride that high through a couple weeks in the studio, probably about a month, mm-hmm. uh, which will cover about, you know, three to four different play days or odd play days, maybe less. And then it's not that you get... You, you you know you get unenthusiastic but it's just you go back to normal levels you revert to the mean and you go back to where you usually are and then it kind of ramps up towards the end of the season knowing that another event is upcoming so it's like this weird you know with this weird cycle of where it's like you're going up and it's like oh my god live event and then it's like a couple shows after a live event all right middle of the season oh my god season's ending get really excited oh my god live event you know etc so mm-hmm. that's the way i see it i'm I have battled motivation before being in studio in comparison to live events. Not having the crowd obviously affects you. So I've been trying to be more invested in the players and in the teams and and setting a, a, a higher floor for my energy. And, and that's actually been my biggest focus over the last month of our super month was working hype 
and energy and genuine enthusiasm into the broadcast more. I think I've been doing a, I think I've been doing a, probably a better job than I expected. And the feedback's been really good, but it's definitely something that's been an endeavor of mine. So it's about kind of raising that baseline performance. So you've always got a somewhat consistent product. Do you play a part in developing some of the younger talent when it comes to casting or uh, have any hand in the, you know, the ability to get somebody hired or give someone a chance or give someone a platform. Um, is there, is there anything that you do with somebody who has, you know, more experience and obviously, um, more connections and more influence to, um, have, have other, other casters come into whether it be pro league or just some other tournament or give them a chance in some way. I try to keep a good finger on the pulse of upcoming talent. Um, I think a lot of people do in large part because you want to see what your competition is and, and what's going on in the amateur scene, but also because rainbow six is growing at such a speed that we are still starved for, you know, endemic talent. And I say endemic talent because like I mentioned, there's a lot of people who want to come from other games to rainbow six, but I've been pretty unimpressed with some of the efforts to learn the game from some of them. Um, some of them I think have transitioned over pretty effortlessly blue, for example, I think has made a, a really strong impact. I think he's been an excellent hand to have on board. Um, but there's, I think there's a lot of people who really underestimate how hard it is to learn this game and understand it at a top level. And it requires serious research and serious homework that I don't think a lot of, you know, people who want to be variety casters or who just kind of want to come over for an event here or there really understand how big of an, uh, you know, an undertaking it is. So I try to keep an eye on the endemic talent and there's a lot of really good ones coming up. Um, I'm consistently encouraging different casters to apply for community casting roles through ESL to do go fors and, you know, putting names forward for challenger league broadcasts. Um, you know, I specifically asked to cast with Stokes at the U S nationals, for example, because he's somebody who I think has, a lot of potential and I really wanted to work with him because I wanted to try to help him and, and teach him along the way. Uh, Flynn was somebody who, you know, I, I'd only been a pro league caster for about a month and a half and Flynn was a good friend of uh, a friend of mine. And they said, you know, oh, this guy's up and coming, you know, we think he's got a lot of potential, etc. And I sat down and I watched two and a half hours of Flynn's VODs one day between pro league matches. And I literally critiqued the ever living shit out of it. I wrote down all of his strengths, all of his weaknesses. I indexed it with timestamps and I sent it to him and I gave him as much thorough feedback as I could. And now Flynn is probably the most pro league ready amateur caster that's out there right now. Mm -hmm. Who's had countless experiences that are, you know, well suited to his talents and his ability. I'm, I, I kind of have this, I kind of have this, this mindset where, I think we all benefit from having a more robust set of casters in the wings. And I'm trying to keep an eye out on as many of them as possible. And to people at Ubisoft, to people at ESL, I try to push their names so that we can get fresh faces getting these opportunities because I think it really strengthens the scene overall. What's some stuff that you can, you can point to that, uh, would 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 mark a pro league ready caster there's not a lot of conversations about what makes a good commentator uh what what are some stuff for example with with flynn that you gave him criticisms on what are some, okay. what's some what's some stuff that you gave him feedback on that he improved upon that could be applied to just 
people in general that are trying to get, get get good at casting? What are some common mistakes that you see? What do you think actually separates the best commentators from the good commentators? And uh, what makes a caster special? Rainbow Six is extremely hard to spectate and really hard to cast because it's so chaotic. And the spectator system that we have, frankly, doesn't help us at all. Um, you know, I, I was I was watching I was watching a lot of the IEM minor from the studio here, and I was just so many shades of envy with how easy it is to visualize what's going on in Counter Strike. You know, I and and I think it's I think it's a perspective that a lot of casters don't have. Like you know, MOBAs are so easy to spectate. You know, uh, Counter Strike I think is exceedingly easy to spectate. I think that Call of Duty is really easy to spectate. I think it's quite challenging in Overwatch, um, but Overwatch, as long as as long as the casters in Overwatch get a dedicated overhead cam that they can refer to, I think it's a lot easier for them. We're handicapped by only having one spectator system, so I, I know that it's not really a it's not really a a way to critique uh, just a caster in general. But the way that a caster can control the pacing of their words and the way that it fits the actual match itself is incredibly important. There are some rounds where, you know, stuff will happen for two minutes and 45 seconds, but to the average viewer, it seems inconsequential. It seems boring. It seems lackluster. A team could literally flank watch and drone for two minutes and 20 seconds, take very minimal map control, use very little of their gadgets and utility, and then they all just kind of dogpile each other, you know, at the one yard line in the final five seconds of a round. How did the hell do you cast that? <laughs> You know, so it's, it's something that you just have to, it's something that you just have to kind of keep an ear out for, um, for a lot of the stuff like Flynn and all that, it was more just that he wasn't a caster. So technical stuff, your pacing, your hype, when do you yell? When do you get calm? When do you, you know, be a little bit more bullish with your words and when do you just let loose? Um, and on top of that, the biggest thing for me is game knowledge. Play-by-play -play casters need to understand the game of Rainbow Six a lot better than I think a lot of other games because there is so much downtime that the play-by-play -play caster isn't doing that much play-by-play -play until the final 30 seconds. That's obviously not a, you know, a rule. There are exceptions to that. But by and large, your play-by-play -play caster needs to understand the game well enough to be able to get through as if they were a secondary color commentator. And that's the most difficult. And the biggest thing is, is that I listen to a lot of up and coming Rainbow Six casters and I'm like, you have no fucking idea what you're talking about right now. And I appreciate the fact that you're trying, but you can lean more on your co-caster and try to maybe do a bit more play by play and describe what's going on and then let the person who knows the actual analysis of the game be able to break it down. There is a remarkable amount of room for analysis. This is you're saying longer rounds, more utility um a lot of a lot of stuff that doesn't have to do with shooting a lot of informational plays that get made tons of stuff to talk about that is not that is not kind of um it's not it, it doesn't help to use play by play to highlight those things i and what the craziest part is that in rainbow you don't have a mini map whereas in cs i i could cast with only a mini map I think 60% of what I talk about comes from looking at a mini-map. We'll have one monitor that is just a mini-map, uh, talking about rotations and uh, talking about positioning and you know some of the 
more nuanced details about how somebody moved around a box or where their cross replacement was. That stuff is, is great to speak about, but you couldn't carry a cast with only that. It's actually so much more important to talk about the bigger picture and how to draw the storyline from that, that perspective. Uh, is there, is that in the pipeline? Is there, is, is there, um, it, it feels like there is such a big audience for rainbow six and a big player base, but there's still a lot of catching up to be done in terms of how much emphasis is on the esports side of things. Are some of these changes coming? Do, do UB prioritize these? Or uh, is, that, is that stuff kind of under wraps? Um, I hope so. I hope it's coming. Um, right now, we only have one spectator slot in game. That's it. Um, which is very limiting. And when we when we're on when we're when we're uh, watching LAN and we're on LAN, we have two spectator slots. So usually the color commentary will have the screen in front of them, very similar to you had at your desk and I am Katowice here for the minor. You've got a, a monitor right in front of you that is literally just a top-down view of the map, so that you know Kicks or Emzo can look over at it and know where everything is. And even just having that helps the spectating aspect as well, because, you know, the spectator can refer to that and then be able to make changes to the main spectator cam as well. Um, I think that a replay system, a possible free cam, I think all that stuff would make life so much easier, just additional spectator slots. And I think there is a very hard ceiling on this game that is currently set by how much more work needs to be done to be able to view this game correctly. Cause you're not only talking about sight lines, you're talking about what can happen with gadgets, you know, at, at any moment we're talking about people being able to literally kill people through two floors. That's prearranged, you know, like this kind of stuff is not just, it doesn't just ha happen randomly. C4s that can get arced frag grenades that can get dropped down. Like this stuff is predetermined and premeditated and we lose it because we just can't spectate it because we don't have the tools to do that. We don't have the staff to do that. We don't have the resources to do that. Um, and it's extremely frustrating. You know, it's, it's very, very frustrating. And I know that it's a priority to improve the spectating experience, but I have no idea how far along they are. It's been something that we've actually been in very much in the dark about. And I really hope that there's a light at the end of that tunnel soon because the sky's the limit, I think, for for where Rainbow Six is right now. Viewership has literally tripled in the last year, and the player base is continuously growing. But we're going to be held back by some of these things that were never in the top of mind for Ubisoft because they never anticipated this game being an esports success. Mm -hmm. And now it is. So they have to kind of scramble to catch up. And I think they're doing an excellent job given the circumstances. But... I'm very impatient <laughs> and I want, I want this stuff now. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got players who want to be able to watch demos. When I watch rainbow, I just think, oh my God, here's a game that has way more to look at than CS in terms of utility and map knowledge. And, and yet you can't flesh out all of the meta of every round without, and the, the most you can do is watch a VOD and get that single perspective and, guess i guess for some of the perspectives what what might have happened there what wall bang affected what or what um what was droned what wasn't and then try to use your memory to complete that the rest of that information there's there's just there's just so much there when i look at rainbow i'm like oh my god the, the meta has so much farther to go 
You've also got maps that remind me of CS in the in the early days. After all these years, we've, you know, we're down to seven maps that are played competitively, and the meta has been ironed out so much that you know T sides on like T side on Mirage for a default has basically not changed in the last year, which is insane. Um, and on in Rainbow, there's like there are so many different props like noises, um, constantly adding uh, operators, all of these things to affect the meta or add variables to the game. Um, is there is that something that pro players complain about? I and mean, pro players complain about everything, but is that uh, 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 at the <laughs> forefront of pro players' minds when it comes to talking about what they have to deal with in the game, the amount of stuff in general, the amount of variables? Like I heard, for example, something about client-side debris. Um, or oh, you, boy. You pop a hole in something and you know you might not be able to see through it, but someone can see you. That would mm -hmm. that would not that would not go over well in CS. Uh, something as small as that would drive people absolutely insane. But because there's so many things, so many small things, and um, in Rainbow, like, do they even focus on those tiny things, or they're just so used to having to deal with all these different variables? Uh, I think there's definitely an appetite there and a desire from the players to get rid of most of that stuff and jettison it from the game. But I think that there's a balancing act that needs to be struck, and it's that CS:GO is in my opinion, at least from the outside looking in, very much competitive first and foremost, balanced extraordinarily for the competitive mindset. And Rainbow Six has an enormous casual player base that don't consider the placement of certain props that could possibly disrupt a sightline. You know, they don't care about certain textures or the way that a certain soft wall breaks, etc., Something as egregious as client-side debris, which, by the way, got me killed today playing uh, on stream. Mm -hmm. You can go to punch a hole out of a barricade, and it kind of just kind of the wood just kind of sits there. But on somebody else's screen, it might have fallen down, and I got killed through what looked to be a solid barricade. But that's because the wood was still there on my screen and wasn't on somebody else's. You know that kind of thing has, in my opinion, zero competitive integrity. But, I mean, you don't really have to worry about that on land because everybody's got the same perspective because <clears throat> you're playing on land. Um, but online, that's that's really frustrating. And, I mean, there's lots of shit in the game that I think needs to go. They have these sprinklers on a bottom portion of the bank bomb site where people are like, get rid of those sprinklers. You can't hear anything. And they're like, well, the sprinklers are there because if the sprinklers weren't there, then the defenders would have too much of an advantage to be able to, you know, hear the attackers come. And it's like, so then go and change the map around so that the defenders have less of an advantage, but you get rid of the damn ambient noise, you know, like there's a lot of stuff like that, that pro players hate. Mm -hmm. As a spectator, I can't stand it either. I think a lot of it needs to go. I think that Rainbow Six maps are far nicer to look at than CSGO. And I think a lot of that is, the, you know, it, it's because of the little touches that they do. The paintings on the walls, you know, the the poinsettias on the counter, you know, the the drug bags, you know, the money, the computer monitors, it's all et your cetera. favorite things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, those are those are my favorite things. The poinsettias in particular. I'm a big uh -huh. poinsettia guy. Um, I didn't think it's like, like that. All, yeah, yeah, all of, all of those, <laughs> all of those things I think make it look aesthetically nice, and I think the aesthetics of Rainbow Six are gorgeous. But competitively, I would actually like to see if they just could turn those off for competitive maps, and maybe even have a pro league setting 
where a lot of that debris and, and stuff is just gone for pro league, similar to the way that they have different pro league HUD and they have different pro league settings, maybe have maps as well, where it's just certain things aren't there. I understand that from a resource perspective, that would probably be difficult, but people shouldn't be losing fights because barricades don't break or because things look different on somebody else's screen or a body is a certain way. Bodies are also client side. We had one match in particular that was pretty infamous um, where a guy on, from our perspective was creeping up on another dude. And that dude was just completely in the open. And we're like, why are you not shooting him? Mm -hmm. But on the guy's perspective, he was literally inside of another body and he couldn't see him. Oh, wow. That's not good. Yeah. Uh, that's not good. Oh, okay. So that's so, I mean, we have, if somebody gets, if a, if a chicken walks into somebody's scope in CSGO and they fire because of it, because they thought it was a person, it'll have 2000 upvotes on Reddit and people go crazy and be like, all right, this is, this is ridiculous valve. How can we play this game just for a chicken walking into a scope? There's, there's just so many more things like that in rainbow, but I think we are kind of spoiled in that regard. However, I think that does bring up an interesting topic and that is that with CSGO, everything is so tailored towards the competitive atmosphere that our casual population has all but not died off, but uh, stagnated. And we don't have as many kind of dedicated CSGO streamers that would only that only play CSGO. That's not really a thing anymore because there's, you know, you've already gotten global in matchmaking and then you go play ESEA or face it. And if your goal is not to become a pro player from there, it's not much motivation to continue on and play, you know, matchmaking all day long. Um, whereas in rainbow, there's a lot more kind of fun stuff. There's like a thriving, um, casual population and you guys have a ton of players on console, but your problem I would say is, and it's, it's, it's probably a good problem to have is how, how do you activate that dormant audience of, of players who play the game casually and turn them into, uh, not esport into pro league viewers how do you how do you activate that audience um of, of people who are who are casual players and, and get them to watch pro league or is that even the goal um i think there's been a, the massive uh distance that's been established between the casuals and the competitives are uh, lay at the feet of a couple people um first and foremost it's got kind of the problem that call of duty is is undergoing right now which is that the game's ranked system does not reflect pro league in any way, shape or form. We're starting to see movement on that front. Uh, that SI playlist that they came up with the six invitational playlist basically uses pro league rule set and the overwhelming majority of all the feedback on both Twitter and Reddit is very positive. So I think there's a, a groundswell of support around the idea of, um, moving the pro league rule set to ranked. And it's something that I'm very hopeful that Ubisoft will implement because let's face it, you could be the best player in the world who plays this game at the highest level of ranked and is the best ranked player that's ever existed. But if you tune into your very first pro league broadcast, you're going to see a rule set in a game that doesn't mirror what you play at all. And I think that there's a major disconnect there because of that. And I think that, you know, trying to align pro league, but the way this game is played is a great stepping stone for people to get involved in the highest level of competitive play. Um, additionally, I honestly think that Ubisoft has not done the greatest of jobs to market towards those type of fans. You know, there's no esports presence at all on the launch screen, period. You've got, you know, millions of people who play this game every day. 
And they have no idea that a pro league exists unless they go looking for it. You know, and I think that's inexcusable. Um, and I'm hopeful that that gets addressed as well. And we've been seeing that actually the whole way that this six invitational has been, has been worked, has been excellent. You know, we've got brand new splash screens. We've got the road to the SI playlist. There's been marketing for it. They've released a trailer for it. Like it's been, it's been great. And I would like to see more of this. I would like to see a dedicated esports tab on the main page to engage with people. I would like to see more of a presence in game about esports related stuff as well. I think all of that can go because I think there is definitely an appetite to bring in a greater, a greater wealth of the player base, but that player base just doesn't know it exists. It's not that they know about it and they're hostile to it. There are certainly a not insignificant number of casuals who feel that way. But I think another greater issue is that 30 to 40% of this player base probably doesn't even know that a pro league exists. They don't know about any of it. Mm -hmm. And I also think a lot of it lies at the feet of consoles. Console players, in my opinion, play FPS games totally differently than PC players. Overall, console players are far more casual in how they play and digest their games. I just, I don't, you know, if you want to market, you know, Rainbow Six as the pinnacle of competitiveness and that you want to balance it all around that, you're going to piss off the millions of people who play this game on casual, just full stop. You're just going to. And the only, there's only a couple ways around it, I think, outside of slowly trying to ease people into it, like this current playlist is doing. I think the only other real step is to just do it and hope that people stick around mm -hmm. and hope that your PC player base stays high. But I don't necessarily think that's a great idea monetarily for Ubisoft. So I think right now they're doing the best they can with the resources they have, and I don't envy them. But I still think at the end of the day, there's a lot of steps that they can take to try and appeal to and cater to the casual side of the Rainbow Six players. Can you appeal to the casual side of the or the the uh, the aspiring pro player side of the of the player base without compromising the integrity of or sorry, without compromising the kind of fun that a casual player might have? Is is it a, a zero sum game or is there a way to uh, both make the game kind of more serious like for example i mean the like the debris thing that's not something mm -hmm. that even though it's not a priority it wouldn't it wouldn't drive any casual player away from the game in any way right are there a lot more changes like that that could happen no and, and that's the thing is it's like there's a lot of stuff that both the casuals and the pros hate equally you know mm -hmm. that whole client side debris and stuff like that nobody likes that it's not a mechanic of the game that is deliberate nor particularly enjoyable um the problem is, is that it's optics. It's not necessarily a yes or no answer to your question for the record. Most of the game is currently balanced for the highest level of play and is still greatly enjoyed by casuals of all skill levels. The problem is, is that when you suggest changes to operators that are fundamentally broken or incompatible with high level play, the casual market rather than realizing that that operator will probably be in line with all the other operators they like, they freak out because it's not so much necessarily change that they don't like. There's a huge swath, like I said, of this player base who are just openly hostile to pro league mm -hmm. and they're openly hostile to a competitive mindset spoiling their game. And I think a lot of it is, and I know that the word is it's, it's hard to get around using this word, but a lot of it is just a lack of understanding of what is and is not balanced. 
Most of the operators that they enjoy playing day in and day out are perfectly balanced for every single level. Bronze all the way up to diamond, all the way to pro league, solo queued, duo queued, team queues. But there's an apprehension to letting one side win. And there are common sense changes that the casual side wants too that I think would make pro league more enjoyable. But pro league rejects it as well because both sides just don't like each other, right? Mm -hmm. There hasn't been a good harmonization. And I think a big part of that is because right now they are just on so many levels fundamentally opposed to each other. Like I said, we're not even playing the same game. The ranked and casual rule set does not look anything close to pro league. They're just not, and they're not represented in each other. So people who love this game and grind this game see pro league and they don't think it's an accurate representation of what they love. Whereas the pros who play this game day in and day out see ranked and casual and they don't think that's an accurate representation of the game they love. And it's very difficult to get people to come together when they're that far apart. Right. I think right. making these smaller steps like this playlist is going to bring people closer together. And I think then that it will be easier for, you know, both sides of the community to be able to get on the same page with certain operators, certain balancing ideas, et cetera. Yeah. So it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to bridge that gap when people are so insulate, insulated with their me medium of playing and using a controller versus a keyboard, just fundamentally different um, mm -hmm. playing on your couch versus playing at your desktop and, yeah, it's just two different lifestyles almost. Should This is an interesting way, I think, to segue into um, one of the good questions we got on Twitter. One's from mm -hmm. Mr. App Appfulbaum, and he asked, should developers listen more to the pro players? Because in Reddit, many people complaining that R6 gets dictated by the pro players. Now, in, in uh, I don't know how, if, if pro players in your games have great opinions, it's very 50-50 in Counter-Strike. Um, mm -hmm. I'm of the mind that pro players should be thought about when making changes, but they're not always correct, and they all often don't always see their own biases. Is that uh, similar to in Rainbow? And where do you stand on pro players' feedback for for balancing or changing the game? Um, I'm the kind of guy where I think that the game ought to be balanced for the highest level um, as best as it can. Now, a couple parts of that that deviate from that thought process. Number one, I have no problem with fun, goofy operators that are not in any way, shape or form good enough to be picked in pro league, but the casual community loves them. That's fine with me. If you want to create fun operators that don't really have a place in pro league, like Cavera, like Frost, like Alibi, etc., like Fuse, by all means, they're fun operators. People love playing them. They're you know, they're, they're fun and rank. They're fun to, you know, fuck around with. Let, let them be played. Not everything needs to be balanced for a pro league, but on the flip side, you can't have anything stronger than pro league than anywhere else. I'm fine with there being weak operators, but I'm not fine with there being operators that are way too strong. So that's, that's kind of where I go from that, from that end. Uh, there's a lot of pro, there's a lot of pros with really shitty ideas. I'm going to be mm. honest with you. Some of the ideas that I've seen for balancing from certain pros literally make me scratch my head and go, what? Mm -hmm. There was a movement amongst a certain number of pros to try to get Mira down to one black mirror. That was it. And I was just like, what are you doing? Like, you'll kill the operator. Like, you know, but by and large, I think their ideas are pretty good. I think some of them go a little too far. And I think some of them want to kind of turn the game into a much slower, almost like a military sim, very akin to like Arma. 
And, you know, Arma is a fine game, but there's a reason why there's no Arma Pro League. And there's a reason why it doesn't really get viewership on Twitch and doesn't really have a high player base. You, you need to be casual and kind of arcadey and in certain ways to appeal to the, it, you know, a console market, but to also a casual market. Um, the only really successful FPS that doesn't do that, I feel, in a lot of ways is CSGO. But then even then you still have like Gun Game or whatever it's called now. You still have the Deathmatch, etc. Like there's still lots of ways where you can play CSGO and have a whale of a time without ever playing it competitively, quote unquote. Um, but I think we have very similar approaches where it's like every single, every single aspect like should be kept in mind. Uh, you know, the pros should be considered content creators should be considered viewing experience should be considered casuals too. But I don't necessarily think that one of those segments deserves the most say that was a very good answer i kind of i can't really build on that i just kind of mirror the sentiment and it feels like we've got very similar player bases hey i've got something for you okay you've been talking about toxicity in esports and you've talked about it thoroughly there's a lot of um there's a lot of content for people to absorb uh i think the what was the podcast that you did in case people can go and can go and find your opinions on a lot of that stuff um, there it's on my Twitch channel. Um, I do this thing called Bang On, which is just a play on what used to be, you know, the artist formerly known as Intero Bang, as you put it. Um, I do this podcast called Bang On from time to time. It's very ad hoc. It's just if there's something that is pertinent to the scene, I will usually go on and rant about it. Mm -hmm. um, but I basically did like an hour talking about everything from supporting streamers who have to deal with it and how it gives you a bad look for your product to... Uh, more levers that can be used in game for people to be able to report this kind of thing to, you know, curbing the amount of people who can do it. And because there are a lot of ways that people can, you know, fuck with you in casual and ranked. And, and there was ways to maybe take that away without completely and fundamentally changing the game. Yeah. Because team, because team damage is incredibly important, especially with certain operators. Um, you know, so there's, there's definitely ways around it. And, Anyway, I, I don't have a link handy. It's not on YouTube or anything. I just I saved it as a highlight on my Twitch channel. Okay. Um, but it, it's, I don't know. I talk about it a fair bit because it's like, I'm, I've always been the kind of guy where it's like, if a game's player base gets overrun with shitty people, then it's very hard to take it back. See here, this is what I, this is what I wonder. Now, now I, I granted, I, I see like immediately um, that in, in Rainbow, it's super easy to grief. Uh, it's... Mm -hmm. It's just so, it just seems so frustrating, and they're like, it's effortless. It's it's crazy. Uh, yeah. Like even in CS, I think if you do team damage, it's not as it's not one to one to if you were to damage somebody else. Um, but in Rainbow, it's just like the full amount of damage. Like I accidentally saw, shot someone in casual, and they just immediately shot me back, and I didn't even shoot them on purpose. Like I was just shooting past them, and I guess people are just so used to it. Like they just yep. he just turned around and immediately lit me up. I was like, all right, man, that's I'm sorry, but you didn't even give me time to apologize. Um, but, but what, what I would like to, and this is more of a statement than anything else, but I feel like people are so biased when it comes to their, their community versus another community, as if uh, there isn't overlap in a lot of the communities. There's, I, I really don't, I really don't feel like, or I would argue against people who would say that one community is better than another community. I think to some extent you can cultivate some of the personalities and the way people are, but to a large extent, it's just more people. It's just other people. And um, I think that the the reason that people see so much more toxicity in another eSport, so if someone goes from CS to Rainbow or Rainbow to CS, 
I think they see way more toxicity, not because uh, they're so used to the kind of players in their game or they have just like some kind of um, anecdotal bias because they didn't get it randomly in their game. I think it's because I think it happens so much because they go into a new game and they're bad players and people at the casual level or low ranking level are way worse than people who are more serious about actually winning and are therefore higher ranked because of it. Um, I think a lot of the casual players are a little bit younger, a little bit more immature, and because they don't care as much, are going to be more likely to have fun by any means, whether that's like messing with their teammates or um, and and or whatever throwing. Um, I I see it I see it a couple ways. Number one, um, I think I even said in my speech like Rainbow Six is is not any more toxic than most other games. In fact, if anything, I would think that Overwatch has a much more miserable experience to play than Rainbow Six. Um, the golden era of League certainly had a much more miserable experience than Rainbow Six. But I think you you hit the nail on the head right at the start. There's just so many opportunities to grief. Mm-hmm. The, the uh, impact that you can have to ruin somebody's game in Rainbow Six is so disproportionate in comparison to almost every other game. You know? Team damage is not reduced like it is in CSGO. You can smash everybody's gadgets. You can just continuously run out and feed. You can cost people cameras by pinging and giving away their position. You can scream over the mic. You can wipe out an entire team repeatedly. You can down people and then have them get finished off by the enemies. Like there's just, there's so many ways that you can ruin somebody's day in Rainbow Six that you can't in other games. And I don't think Rainbow Six is inherently more toxic. If anything, I actually think we have a really pleasant community by and large. But there's just so many tools that griefers have. And that's why I think changing a, a couple things would, without altering the game would be great. You know, people are saying, oh, just get rid of team damage. Well, you have that operator fuse. He employs a cluster charge. It dumps five grenades on a certain area. You can't just run in there and have a fuse do that because it will kill you. Even if you're on his team, he will still kill you from that. If you got rid of team damage, then that negates one of the downsides of his ability. You could literally just get two of your guys to stand underneath while those went off and you wouldn't take any damage. That would be broken. So there's there's a trade-off to that. And you know a lot of things are balanced around team damage as well. Shields, for example. You can't just blindly spray with a shield standing in front of you, like a Montane or a Blitz or a Clash, because you'll damage them. But you could if they got rid of team damage because you'd never hurt your own teammate. That make it extraordinarily overpowered. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of stuff to consider in that regard. Um, But yeah, I mean, we saw it firsthand because I I felt like I played with you for like most of your 20 levels before we got to ranked, if not all of them. All of them. And it was just like, it was just like we saw people team killing repeatedly. And a lot of it is the same thing. Like somebody shoots you once and you just immediately turn around and team kill somebody. And it's because it's so common. The amount of times that I've seen somebody just throw a nitro cell down and blow their entire team up for no reason and completely ruin an entire round in game countless countless times and do i think it's because they're immature and more casual sure but i think there needs to be greater punishment for people who do that because whether the game is or is not more toxic or whether the player base is or you know is not more likely to commit toxic you know acts against their teammates there are just so many ways that you can just have an entire day ruined that there needs to be a mechanism to punish those people to keep those instances as low as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you, you've done a, done a podcast talking about a lot of great options. 
I think the one that I liked the most that I heard was mirroring the damage. So if you yep. shoot somebody that does damage to you, is there is there anything that could potentially go wrong there? Or is that just a really good potential option? Well, well, I mean, a griefer would just deliberately run in front of you, right? But even then, that's still keeping the agency in your hands, which I also think is important. You know, when, when it's... When you're getting griefed, you lose all of your agency. You lose control. You're vulnerable. You lose all your power. And on top of being griefed, there's also a sense of helplessness. Mm -hmm. If you're the if there's mirrored damage, you're fully in control. They can be standing in front of you, but you don't need to pull that trigger. You still have full agency. You are still empowered to not make that decision. Whereas the other way around, the griefers are the ones who are making the decision to team kill you. So yeah, there's definitely ways around it. There's also the ability to reset as well that you have to consider too. Um, and times when, you know, you might accidentally damage a teammate and get yourself killed, which might not be fair. There's always going to be downsides to this, to every system that gets proposed, but mm -hmm. I think that's probably the fairest for casual. Um, because casual is where an inordinate amount of the team killing occurs. It's where all of the garbage and toxicity tends to, you know, accumulate. And I also think a lot of it is because of how terrible the casual rule set is the rule, the, you know, the timer's four minutes, that's an eternity. Yeah. And a lot of people play casual really, really loose and really fast. And then they basically sit around for an extra three minutes while one guy drones the entire map moves three feet and then gets killed. And it's just like, why didn't you just run in? And then people get resentful and people get bitter and then people team kill, et cetera. Yeah. So I think helping fix the rule sets in addition to all the other changes, I think those things would be a pretty good start. Um, th yeah, I, I think, um, I think, I think it is a, it's, it's definitely stupid to say that because no option's perfect, that you shouldn't look for more options or you shouldn't try to employ different, different changes and look for better changes, even if they're not perfect. That's, that's for sure. Um, mm -hmm. but to, to move away from that a little bit, we got a question from Mary on Twitter. He asked, uh, considering movement is really important part of CS. What do you think UB could do? to uh to add to improve the arguably clunky movement in r6 i don't know if the movement's clunky in r6 i don't know if that's agreed upon with you or anybody else um do you think the movement needs changes in uh, rainbow or do you think it's good the way it is um i think the side to side movement and stuff like that can be clunky but overall we're in what's being called you know the fits of a qec meta which is q and e are the lean buttons and then c is crouch where operators are literally bobbing left and right, left and right, left and right, up and down, up and down, and are basically unkillable because you don't know where to shoot center mass. Should you try for a headshot? Who, who fucking knows where you're going to end up landing a shot? Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's clunky at all. If anything, it's far more graceful and far faster than most shooters movements outside of maybe call of duty or Titanfall. Um, if anything, I think that siege's movement right now is a little bit too quick. I don't think the net code was built for it. I don't think the game was built for it. I don't think there's any strategic aspect to somebody literally looking like they're breakdancing in front of you while they have full control and they have zero penalty to both movement as well as aim. You know CSGO, how much of a penalty you have to aim when you're moving. Yeah. And Rainbow Six, it's just not there. You can be sprinting full speed and you have very minimal penalty at all. You can be fully ADS and walking at the same speed as crouch walking, and you don't have any disadvantage to do either of those. Yeah. Um, uh, to con contextualize that a little bit for you, uh, with the history of CS changes, there have been, you know, I'm just specialized in movement for the entire time. I've made YouTube videos, basically, and I've, I've watched mm -hmm. Valve kind of slow the game down over time because it is very demanding on the netcode and very frustrating 
um, when it comes to things like peeker's advantage or crouch spam abuse, yep. uh, when somebody can just do that and pre-fire or run out and shoot before you can react. And so over time, the game is just kind of slowed down incrementally, whether it's with, uh, they've added acceleration um, uh, bonuses or debuffs to, or not debuffs, um, they've added deacceleration, sorry, to, to weapons that are heavier, so you can't peek as quickly with them. Uh, they've slowed down ladder movement speed. They've uh, done a done a variety of these things. They've actually helped over time, and funnily enough, like to not not to without improving the netcode. They've made it so that there's less complaints about the netcode because they've made the the game move down to a pace that's uh, kind of reasonable and gives you time to react. Yeah. Um, but uh, somebody asked somebody about crouching, which I thought was interesting, and I actually want to ask you about this. The Rainbow is an FPS game. But it's 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 got colors of MOBA in there. Like there's there's a ton of operators, a ton of options. There's no jumping, so it's kind of like this. Uh, it's kind of like a MOBA with verticality and shooting in some way, like an FPS MOBA. Is that a fair way to characterize Rainbow? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people try to liken it to like a hero shooter, but I think it's got more strategic elements to it. I mean, at the end of the day, the MOBA aspect is is important for, you know, destruction and all that jazz, but you can, you can quite comfortably play an entire match of rainbow six without anybody using a gadget. Um, it's obviously harder, mm-hmm. but it's definitely, you know, it's definitely doable because there's still a lot of tools at your disposal. Whereas if you were to look at overwatch and you were to play a match of overwatch without anybody using any of their abilities, very, very different, you know, um, and I think Overwatch is probably more like a MOBA than us, but we have MOBA-esque features, I think is a good way of putting it. I still think it's more of like a tactical FPS team shooter with MOBA abilities or a MOBA-ness to it. But um, yeah, so if you look at something like Crouch, um, I would love a fatigue or a stamina system, you know, especially for leaning. I, I don't really think that there's a place in a game that is supposed to be close quarters, that's supposed to reward smart and intuitive plays, that's supposed to reward angles being held. I don't think there's much of a merit behind having a three speed literally bulldoze in and then, you know, do a river dance in the middle of the site and kill everybody. I just I don't necessarily see the benefits of that in comparison to where we were, you know, back before people realized how how utterly powerful this you know the 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 ability to lean spam and crouch spam was Mm -hmm. ubisoft referred to it in a communication that they had a a week ago as abusive and i think that's very telling uh in the way that they intend to go about changing it and i'm I'm very glad the net code for rainbow six receives just as many if not more complaints than almost every other game that i've ever played and i think for good reason but i think that following that csgo model like you said wherein the developer deliberately slows things down so that the net codes uh shortcomings aren't quite as noticeable yeah is a major is a major step forward in the right direction um and i think crouch spamming and lean spamming is a pretty good starting point it's going to be really interesting to see uh over time how rainbow develops because it's just such a raw gem right now there's so much of cs that i see in the game and and how Mm -hmm. much can be done to improve and just shave off the corners and just you know really polish it and make it um kind of a, the best version of itself and it, it feels like it's somewhat far away from that but it's very clear how to get to that i just hope that the community is really responsive to the changes every every single change along the way because cs players have become accustomed to not having to deal with change 
every small difference in movement or whatever has just been received so poorly uh, over the years. But um, I want everyone to know in Rainbow that a lot of these changes will be good at the end of the day. Um, and you'll get used to them and the game will be better and you'll have much less frustrating moments and um, probably a much better experience. Uh, Mary also asked, now that the AUG is prevalent in CS, it reminds me of the ACOGs in Siege. Thoughts on removing the scope from the AUG and maybe the ACOGs from R6? Is that is that a uh, is that a divisive point of conversation? The ACOGs in R6? I know they're strong. Or do people complain about how how good they are? Do they look overpowered, or is it just? Well, I think it's funny, right? Because the AUG only just recently got buffed. What four months ago? Three months ago? Something like that. Um... No, no, the price dropped. The buff. It wasn't actually. No, no, I know that, but I, I, I consider that a buff. So the, they changed the okay. economy behind it, right? And that they definitely buffed its viability, I would say, because now people will actually buy it sure. uh, in much greater numbers. Um, and as we talked about um, offline, it's become a much more savory option for a lot of teams. And I think that at some point there will need to be an adjustment from Valve. I, you know, from what. You've told me in the very brief bit of research I did after that, I, I would agree with you on that, obviously. Um, but it would be foolish for me to disagree with you on anything CSGO related because my knowledge of it is very, uh, very inferior in comparison to pretty much everybody. It goes both um, But the thing, with, the thing with ACOGs is that ACOGs were never balanced or rebalanced the way that you know the AUG's price was. Um, I actually don't necessarily know what I would consider on the same level. I don't think they're on the same level because ACOGs have always been prevalent in the game. If anything, three speeds have actually been slowed down. Three mm -hmm. speeds used to be much faster. Ubisoft have taken gradual steps over the last two years to align the speeds of the three operators, the three speeds, the two speeds, and the one speeds, and make them as close to possible, you know, close to each other as, as is humanly possible. Um, the problem with ACOGs are that almost every single attacker has access to them. Um, if not every attacker outside of the shields, if I remember correctly. Um, whereas on defense, only a couple operators have access to them. Doc, Rook, Echo, Maestro, and Kaid now as well. Uh, so you can technically run five ACOGs on defense. And obviously ACOGs give you a huge advantage with almost no downside. The only real downside to, to an ACOG is the fact that if you're super, super, super close range, you might not be able to aim the same way that you would with you know a one-time and a hollow, a red dot, or a reflex. Um, but I think the bigger issue right now, um, is that number one, the attackers are losing more rounds than they're winning. So I'm actually quite surprised by how many people are crying for major changes to attackers, because I think by changing a lot of these attackers, you'd be nerfing them, which would only make the defense even better, which is kind of a surprise to me because I think there's a lot of change that could be happening on the defender side of things too. Um, do I think that there's an opportunity to balance out the way that the ACOGs are used on a certain on certain operators on attack? Absolutely. I personally don't think that three speeds should have access to an ACOG. Uh, I think that they're already too fast. I think they already have very visually small hitboxes, and most of them already have very strong guns. That if you have a three speed, that the intention behind them should be that they play up close, and that an ACOG doesn't make sense in that regard. If you're going to have a three speed whose job is to basically, in, the, in most cases, rush in and take fights close range, then make them either number one, if that's not their job, make them a two speed or two, take away their ACOGs. Um, 
but ultimately at the end of the day, I don't think ACOGs on attackers are that big of a difference uh, or that big of a, an issue in comparison to a lot of other things in the game. And it certainly wouldn't probably be in my top five or top 10 things to look at right now in the game. You've had a, you've had a super month. Is that what it was called? Super yes. month? What was it? 25 broadcast days, something like that? Um, six, seven and seven. So 20 days. So we did 20 shows not including the three days of qualifiers, which a different team did. So our studio did 23 shows in, I think, 25 days or something like that. Uh-huh. that 24 days. That, that ghastly exhale that you just had really, I think, sums it up. Is this a... It was a long, it was a long stretch. Okay. It was a long stretch. Is this going to happen again next month, or what's the deal with that? God, I hope not. Okay. Um, so basically, basically, the reason why it happened was uh, we were set to go in December. We were already looking at a condensed schedule by about a month because uh, we have the six Invitational coming up in February. So we were going to try to shorten it as much as possible and get everything in in December and January really quick. We might have had a couple weeks where instead of doing three shows, we did four or five, but nothing really that egregious. The problem was, was that after Kaid and Nomad launched in Wind Bastion in December, the game was in really awful shape. Lots of issues with gadgets just not making noise. Breach mm -hmm. charges going off without there being a sound. Thermite charges going off with no audio cue. Uh, diffusers going down and not making any noise and people not knowing. And sound is so incredibly important in Rainbow Six that even one small misstep in regards to a game glitch could cost you the round. Um, so basically all of December got postponed Okay. now because we'd already postponed February, we had to do December, January and February all in the same month before mm -hmm. we broke for the invitational in February. Um, and you know what? It wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. It was an awful lot, but you can't really, you didn't really have time to do VOD review, uh, as extensively as you want. You don't really have the time to do the prep work that you want. Uh, everybody was really tired. I'm exhausted right now. I'll be honest with you. It's been, it's been very taxing, but at the same time, I've also been streaming on my days off and I've been streaming before shows. So who knows if I hadn't done that, maybe I would be, you know, with more energy, maybe I'd be, you know, better rested. But the biggest issue is that because we broadcast for three different time zones out of the same office, your sleep schedule is just completely borked. Yeah. Just forget, you know, I it, might right? be, yeah, I might be going to bed and realizing like, okay, you know, my next show is in 18 hours or I could be going to bed and being like, okay, my next show is in 12 hours. You know, oh, I'm sleeping during the morning now today. Oh, tomorrow I'm sleeping during the afternoon. Oh, the next day I'm sleeping in the middle of the night, you know, like. Might as well turn this on off. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, I have blackout curtains, which is really helpful. But at the end of the day, Katowice is not a 24 hour city. So mm. there are lots of times where it's like you're awake and there's nothing to do. There's yeah. absolutely nothing to do. And you guys recently pulled the Chick-fil-A, right? And it closed down on Sundays. Yeah. The, uh, the government instituted a law last March um, that they want the people to get more in touch with their families and God. And because of this, they've, um, they've got most things closed on, on Sundays. Um, the, audit, the, the difference is, is that things are open for the last weekend and the first weekend of each month. So you've got two to three weeks there where everything's closed on Sundays. So it's not the, the end of the world, but there are definitely times where it's like literally my only time awake during the day is on a Sunday and Oh, guess everything's closed. What am I going to do? Mm -hmm. You know, which can be quite inconvenient. So what's your, uh, so your day to day now you've got, uh, you've just wrapped up super month and pro league. Um, mm -hmm. you've got the seeds and everything. We're G2 number one, uh, this season. 
No, they're not. They're actually a ways down. I think they finished fifth or sixth. Um, is that new? The best team overall. Yeah, that is that is quite new. Um, the best team overall has been Empire. It's a Russian team. That's uh, Empire is obviously like, a, I think they have a Dota, Dota team. They're a yeah. huge org. Um, they've got a Russian team uh, that is currently the only undefeated team in the Americas and, and Europe. Outside of them, the second best looking team is probably Evil Geniuses, the North American squad. Um, they suffered one loss, uh, which they obviously were very unhappy about. Um, and it was against the team that was formerly Cloud9, now Team Reciprocity. So very good pickup for Reciprocity. That's like a really good squad. Um, Latin America has been a little bit unpredictable. Uh, FaZe is doing quite poorly. Ninjas in Pajamas looks great. Liquid looks great. Immortals look great. Um, it's It's interesting because it's hard to gauge where the teams actually are in large part because of the condensed schedule. There are definitely teams that take full advantage of having a week between each match to fully map everything out. A good mm -hmm. example of that is secret team secret are one of the most methodical teams and they are meticulous about their strategies and they have been in complete and utter free fall this season. And my speculation is because they don't have time to prep. And they are not a team that has worked super well on the fly with minimal prep work behind them. And I think it's showing, you know, the, it's, it's just, it's very odd. And then we're also in kind of like a stale meta because there haven't been any new operators released. It's stale. It's meta. very interesting. Well, because, uh, Kaid and Nomad, uh, won't be available till March because Ubisoft announced that they would be putting all the new operators the moment that they're released in a three month evaluation period. So people are playing the same. People are, people so are this not, is, there's, so yeah. there, there's so much that you like, there's just, I feel like there's gotta be so much you can do, you know, like with, yeah. with CS, we have, you know, a map that's been played in every major that's, that's Mirage mm -hmm. hasn't changed basically, um, in four or five years. And, uh, that map is close to as ironed out. And like once in a while, someone will come up with a new kind of tech, like a boost or something like that to change things up or play a position better than anyone else. And then everyone starts playing that spot. But that's pretty much all you can do. But in Rainbow, there's so much stuff and there's no demo. So it feels like there's so many ways you could innovate and keep secrets or, you know, uh, employ gimmicks or whatever the case is. There's got to be so many options, no? Like how come how come teams can't keep the keep the meta fresh if there's just so many things you can do differently? I, I mean, I honestly don't know. And this is one of those things where my lack of experience as a, as a player will be kind of my undoing. Um, I agree with you. It seems very, it seems very obvious to me that there's so much they can do, but I mean, for these teams, they have to know at least three sites on every single of the seven maps. Mm -hmm. They have to know multiple attacking strats, multiple defending strats. And it also needs to revolve around operator bans um, because you can design an entire strat. And then if they ban your operator that you use as like the cornerstone of that strat, you're in a lot of trouble. Um, and I also think that right now that the defenders have a lot of tools at their disposal for information. You know, they've got Valkyrie with three black eye cameras. They've got Mira with her two black mirrors. You know, you've got Echo with two yokai drones that are invisible. You've got Maestro with two largely indestructible evil eye cameras. You know, you've got Pulse with a cardiac sensor. You've got bulletproof cameras on a number of operators too. You are literally overloaded with info as a defender and you can play super aggressively because of that. And it's very difficult for teams to be able to pull off executes and get plants down and all that jazz because the defense are just constantly face checking you and taking fights at every chance that they get.
And I think we would start to see a healthier meta if a couple of the defenders got nerfed and a couple changes were made. Um, I think there'd be a, a much you know stronger level between the attackers and the defenders. How, how good? How good are uh, G two and the pantheon of great teams? Where where do they rank? Are they just the best team to have ever played Rainbow? How much better are they than the next team? And is there an asterisk on that now that they've had a subpar performance uh, performance in Pro League? Um, I think it's indisputable that they're the greatest team that's ever played. They have managed to do so. You know, their dominance stretches back to right after the Invitational at Gamescom, which was which predates me. They have been the most dominant team in Rainbow Six since before I casted at Pro League. Um, you know, they've got probably five of the best players in the world all assembled on the same roster. Their strats are great. They make very smart decisions. They're struggling right now. Um, I don't exactly know why, but we've seen this a couple times. Uh, they struggled in and around Sao Paulo. They got humbled. They lost. Um, you know, they didn't even make the finals, which was pretty astonishing. Um, cause even the finals they lost in Atlantic city, they at least made it there. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they have this incredible staying power and I wouldn't be too surprised to see them regain their mojo at the invitational and just start clobbering teams again. They go through these weird, like one, two month periods where they're in a bit of a lull. But the other thing to keep in mind is that you can't really have a bad month because your entire month was half of a season right now. Mm -hmm. It really hurts teams that have like a bad couple weeks. If you have two bad weeks, that's like three or four games out of the season that you just threw away, mm -hmm. you know, whereas in reality it's, it's maybe two depending on how, on what days they fall on. So, uh, they're definitely the best game or the best team that's ever played this game. They are right now, they are Astralis, but they have fallen off quite a bit. Whereas Astralis obviously haven't, mm -hmm. um, because rainbow six is still so young. I don't think we've entered the phase where Astralis is, where people have played this game, you know, enough to figure everything out. Yeah. I think there's still just so much that people are learning. Do I think that G2 will stay the best team of all time forever? Probably not. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of that hinges upon how much bigger the game gets and how long the game is around for. Because G2 had, you know, a coach before most teams did. They had staffing levels and, and you know, the, the foresight before most teams did. And having those advantages have been huge. And we're just starting to see a level playing field with like team houses and coaching and stuff like that. And it'll be very interesting to see how teams stack up. I was, yeah, the, the, the storyline of G2 and dominant teams always interest me. I think it's they're very divisive just because dominant teams sometimes cause, uh, not that they don't cause things to go stale, but people are get fed up with seeing the same team win everything. But I think dominance just shows it, it speaks to the, the skill ceiling of the game and it shows that you can be that much better than the next best team, in my opinion. That uh, that shows that there's skill involved, and uh, I think it's a really good sign for a game, especially as it gets older. Um, I think it's really hard to compare two Astralis with a game that's younger than CS, just because I never thought there would there would be a team as good as Astralis or as dominant as Astralis ever after NIP. I never thought that would be possible. Now they officially have beaten um, out NIP in, in a lot of their records, and and have 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 uh, have won over have won tournaments versus a much more competitive scene. Um, yeah. But uh, but I think that is that is really good, even though it's probably annoying for some people to see G2 being being very good. It's really good for the game, I feel like. Um, but uh, yeah, it's getting late here. I have I, I have one last question for you that I did ask okay. you before. 
why do people call you a communist? <laughs> it's a it's a great it's a great Rainbow Six meme. Um, so basically, one of a former pro player and former world champion. Uh, need I remind people that you get that for winning the Invitational? Just want to continuously keep beating that drum. Um, King George, who's one of the largest Rainbow Six streamers. Mm -hmm. Uh, he and I are pretty good friends. And then one day I was just in a stream and he asked if I wanted to part, you know, just hop on and join them because they were looking for more people to play in their stack. I was like, yeah, hell yeah, I'll get on. I was like, I'm just gonna go make some food first. I made avocado toast. Avocados are delicious. It's relatively cheap. You make it super quick. It's filling healthy. So he asked me when I come on, he's like, what'd you make? I was like, oh, I made avocado toast. And he immediately pounces on that article from a while ago that said that millennials are killing like the housing market. And will never afford homes because they're too busy spending all their money on avocado toast. And he said, oh, I see that you hate the housing market. What do you hate? Freedom? What are you, a communist? Mm -hmm. Comicado over here? Eating his, <laughs> eating his communist avocados? And it just, it took off. And I don't really understand why it gained so much traction, but boy, did it ever. And it's just, it has never, and I can't, there, nothing can happen that involves me without some person responding that I am a communist. <laughs> I am not actually a communist in real life, but right. I play one on TV. So, okay. So why do you and always I have talk the K, about Marx? I have the K comrade emote as well. K comrade. Oh yeah. That's cool. Mm. Did you make the teeth? You have a thing with teeth where you're like in your thumbnail, you've got like big teeth and you're in the emote using your thumbnail. That's the only one. So that was, oh, it was, so that, that my thumbnail, like the, my face with the huge white teeth come from the fact that we were at a buddy's, uh, we were at a buddy's like birthday party and he proposed to his girlfriend and all the pictures that they took of us were with the sun, like facing us. So all of our teeth and like our eyes were super yellow mm -hmm. because there wasn't proper color correction. So when he was editing the photos, he was like brightening people's teeth and their eyes so that we didn't look like we had like jaundice or had never, you know, <laughs> proper, like practice proper hygiene ever. Yeah. And I, he sends me a picture and he did it like the crest white, really bright with like a sparkle. And I was just like, I think those are a little too white. Can you just make them look like normal teeth? You know, like my, my teeth are like decently white, but not like that. And he's like, hold on, I got you. And he sends me a picture of me with these huge chompers. And I was like, yeah, that's the one. And I just decided <laughs> to use it as an emote one day. Cause I thought it was a funny picture. Uh, as for the K comrade emote, I don't know what they did. I don't know what they did with the teeth of it, but they, they fucked with the teeth really hard. Cause I look like a beaver yeah. and like, Just a bit of an you, like, look, there. I have no idea what they did with the picture. <laughs> uh, they, they were editing it and they're like, I said like my teeth look really weird because of the, like, how small the picture was. And they're like, we got you. And they did that. And I was like, why, <laughs> why would you do that? You can always count on your subs. That's one thing I've learned. Yeah, I don't I don't know. It was one of my mods who did it. And then I basically just said to him, I was like, Can you please fix the teeth so they look normal? And he's like, Nope. I yeah. was like, All right, I guess I guess this is the emote then. So it's, it's for the people, by the people. It uh, is a very communist way of of giving back to to my fellow comrades. So we've come full circle. There we go. Yeah. There you all go. right. Well, um time zones and, and all that. It's much later for you than it is for me. I've had a long uh, good talk. I was actually quite interested to talk about the Rainbow Six meta and stuff like that. It's stuff I'm constantly learning about, so there's a lot to learn. But thank you so much for coming on the show. Hopefully we can do this again.
this camera, this camera, this camera. Tell the people why they should care about you, Intero. Take this time <laughs> to tell them why, why why should we care about Intero? Uh, I mean, that's I, I'm never somebody who's particularly strong about talking about myself, but thank you for giving me this opportunity. Um, no, this was a lot of fun. You know, you've you've always been you've always been good for conversation at all the various events that we've worked. It's it's nice to learn about people who've been in this industry for a while. I think you in particular have a lot of knowledge about it, given your your path and your history onward. Um, I was really, you know, uh, impressed and it was very heartwarming to see the reception that you and Scrawny got for your casting at the IEM uh, Katowice Minor. I think it was very well-deserved praise and it's nice to see you back on that saddle after your like year-long hiatus after you were wrestling with visa issues. But mm-hmm. um, as for me, uh, I don't know. I, I think I put a lot of work into my craft. I try to be very conscious of the impact that I have as a streamer. I think I try to be really mindful of the words that I use and the way that I approach situations and conflict and things like that. Rainbow Six is still a game that is trying to figure itself out and having level-headed, fair and mature conversations around everything from game dev to balancing changes to things such as changing around the UI and esports and all that, I think is very important. And there was actually somebody in your chat Bobby, who said some extremely nice words earlier on um, about how I kind of act as more of like a figurehead. And I don't necessarily know if that's true, but I think that there's a lot of good that can be done by trying to unite every single wing of the Rainbow Six community. So it's it's not just about esports. It's not just about competitive play or pro league. I think that having somebody there that can try and bring everybody together is really important. And whether it's me, whether it's somebody else, I think that's a role that really does need to be filled. And I'm glad to be helping build upon a game that I really, really enjoy. So I appreciate you giving me the time to come on here and, and talk and share my feedback. And I'm always uh, I'm always more than willing to come back should the need arise. Cool. Yeah, I think it's well received. And um, again, man, thanks for coming on. So that's it from us. This Esports Life, episode 21. It'll go up on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash csboxer. And thisesportslife.com available on all podcast apps and Spotify if you love Spotify. Take care, everyone.